Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and the Yoke with Doke. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Beedratty. Golf season is in full swing, and we have our pro shop all stocked up with some great Beedratty gear, including a few different polos featuring their soft Peruvian cotton and their Russ crew neck. Uh, the Russ crew neck is one of my favorite items. I know it's summer. It's summer, I know that. And this is a sweatshirt, but I've got a cold basement. I still wear my Russ crew necks all around uh, the house. I, I'm a huge fan of the Russ crew neck. It's, it's probably my favorite piece that Beach Ratty makes. Uh, they were in such high demand. We, we, did it, we placed an order about a year and a half ago, and they were in such high demand last year during the winter and fall seasons. We couldn't get our hands on a reorder for the pro shop. So get these while you still can. And uh, also, from now till the end of the weekend, May 14th, all of our polos on our pro shop are 20% off. So go check them out at www.thefriedegg.com. And if you want a polo that doesn't have our logo, go to bedratty.com. Uh, this edition of the Yoke with Doke is the last episode from our massive recording that we did in late January. Uh, obviously quite a bit has happened in the world since then. It it seems like a very, very long time ago. Um, in this episode, we talk, uh, mostly about Tom's very unique new project in the Napa Valley area. And Tom has also has some big news and something we'll, I'm sure we'll talk and dive into more in the coming months, but he's got a new book coming out, which is available for pre-order now. It's called Getting to 18. It's coming out in a few weeks. He dives into the routing process at all of his early designs in this book. Uh, I got a chance to read a few of the chapters uh, a while back, uh, the first couple chapters when he started working on this book, and it was riveting. I, I, I hadn't played two of the three courses that I read the chapters on, and I found myself actually more compelled with the courses I hadn't played yet. So if you're an architecture fan and you like books, I would definitely recommend getting to 18. And you can order that book on his website, renaissancegolf.com. It's available for pre-order. I know he only is publishing a certain quantity. So if if you want to get this book, you should get it now. And uh, now, without further ado, here is Tom Doak. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. How'd you come up with the Doak scale? Really, it was just, you know, the idea for the confidential guide originally was just that I'm writing reviews of golf courses. And we talked a little last night. I mean, one of my inspirations, I'm a big baseball fan. And a book that I had read a couple of years before that, that I that I really loved was a book by Bill James, the baseball stats nerd who 
you know, eventually got in the baseball business and was an advisor to teams for years. And he, he wrote something in the eighties when he was just, you know, nobody knew who the hell he was and he, he lived in Kansas by himself, but he was really analyzing baseball in his spare time. And he wrote something called the baseball abstract, which was, a lot of the same topics that he would cover for teams now and uh, all the essays he does about, you know, does bunting help? You know, how important or take, how important is being able to take a walk versus swinging at every pitch? And, but he also, his baseball abstract, the funniest part of it by far, he would rate every player in the major leagues or every starting player in the major leagues by position. So center fielders, Here's the best one, number one, all the way down to number 24. But he'd also write like a paragraph or two about those players. And his little reviews of the players were just funny as hell. You know, well, it could be, you know, sometimes they were dead serious and like, this is why I don't like this guy so much. And sometimes it's like, you know, everybody knows he's a great player. So let me write something different about him that nobody would know. There's no point in saying that. Ricky Henderson's a great player or Pete Rose was still a great player back then or whoever. Um, you know, he could write that. He could write something funny or critical or negative about Ricky Henderson, but he also had him rated as the number one left fielder and that compensated for whatever he wanted to write about. So when I was writing my reviews of golf courses, I wanted something so I could say, you know, instead of telling you that I think Pebble Beach is a really, really good golf course and that the sixth hole through the tenth hole are is the best stretch of golf holes anywhere in America, you know, everybody knows that. There was no point in me writing about that. So I wanted to write about the holes that I didn't like. But I wanted something in there to say, okay, these are the holes I don't like, but I'm not saying it's not a really good course. So I could write my semi-negative review of pebble beach and give it a nine on the doke scale and everybody would go oh okay you know he doesn't think it's one of the 10 best courses in the world but he still really thinks it's good he's just saying this is why it's not one of the 10 best courses in the world and also like on the flip side give a course that gets everything out of itself praise but also reference like this isn't pebble beach still Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I really had fun here and there was this one cool hole, but it's only a four or a five. Let's not, let's not get carried away. Um, and you know, as my, as my current wife says, it's not, it would have been a great book without the numbers (laughs) because people focus so much on the numbers instead of the reviews. But, but people would say you hate Pebble Beach without the number. They still say I hate Pebble Beach because it's not a 10. It's, you know, it's just, it's crazy how if I didn't give a golf course an 8 or a 9 or a 10, everybody thinks I hate it. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy playing a lot of courses that are a 5 on the Doak scale or even below sometimes. You know, I'm just, you know, the, the number says, okay, just because I like this doesn't mean you should fly to halfway across the country to get there tomorrow. You know, it's fun when you're there, you know, take it on those terms. I, I that's what I think is the, the best part is it gives context to it. Cause like there could be a really great golf course 
but it's not, you know, it puts it into context of like, this is a great golf course, but like, it's not get on a plane to go see it's if you're in the area. That's uh, the thing I find the most interesting. I'm curious, what, what's the bet, what's the course that you've seen make the biggest jump in your eyes from a, like a, a project they did? Like where it's gone from, say, a five. Uh, it, what's the biggest jump in us in the number that you've seen happen from work? Uh, I don't know because usually, you know, I would I would tend to rate the golf course higher if I thought that I would rate it fairly high originally if I thought that it was a good golf course and they just kind of messed up some things. I wouldn't, you know, I'd still give it a pretty good score instead of, instead of knocking the grade way down because it was a mess right now, because, you know, I assumed that sooner or later some of that stuff would get fixed. Um, so, so the, the, the ones that I've changed my mind on and rated much higher, it hasn't been so much because somebody restored them and did a great job. I'd already given them some points for that. It's more like, you know, I just, when I saw this golf course, especially the courses that I saw in the UK 35 years ago when I was on that trip, it's like, okay, I've, I just spent a month in St. Andrews. I just spent a week at Royal Dornick and now I'm here and this is a four or five compared to them. And then I go back years later and I'm like, no, this is like, a six or a seven compared to everything else in the world. It's just when I saw this in 1983, I had just spent a week at all the nines and tens. And, you know, it was just hard to rate them that highly in comparison with those golf courses. Uh, so, you know, it's more about, you know, the dope scale is not infallible. You know, when, when I have to fix something, it's more that I just did a bad job rating the golf course the first time. You know, it's like if it poured rain and you could barely, you know, look forward and see the golf hole, it's hard to rate the golf course really highly no matter what. And, you know, there's a few that that's the only time I saw them. Yeah. And I tried, you know, the one thing I'll say in my defense of that is, I would at least try to write about that in the book. You know, if 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 I didn't like it and it was partly because it was just a shitty day to play golf, that's probably in my review of the golf course that like, you know, maybe this would be better if you could see. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's with anything. Like the you could have that happen with a restaurant, you know. Like Absolutely. Where, where Even <laughs> the best restaurants in the world occasionally don't hit the mark. Or if you've had like a shitty day going into it. Yes. <laughs> and you just aren't in the you you just have had it, it's a that's a that's a thing with like your your experience and perception of things are so much a part of everything well, else that happens. Well, a lot of golfers they're they're review of something is entirely based on how well they played <laughs> entirely I and, have a buddy that has a whole ranking system and, and that's that's not that is not me at all i mean i could play bad and still think it's a great golf course and i can play good and still think it's a crappy golf course in fact if i play really good 
you start I start to question if this could be really a really good course. <laughs> but I've noticed sometimes when I play my worst rounds, I have the most appreciation because I'm all over the place. Sure. You, like, you actually see how the architecture works when you're out of position. If you just if you're standing in the middle of every fairway, 290 off the tee, looking at the green. Golf's pretty dull a lot of the time. Yeah, exactly, and you're not anywhere. But it's it's. I I've had an experience recently where I the first time I played it, I played it just like one of my best rounds ever, and it was just. And then the next time I I was in a really bad place and I was all over. But then all of a sudden it became way more fun because I was you know I saw all, the way all these diff, the green contours worked in a different way, you know. Mm-hmm. So that it's, I totally agree with that. Um, and I do, when we're building courses, you know, we actually stop. When you're building a course, usually you put a stake, a big a stake with like a 10-foot piece of pipe attached to it at the tee and the landing area for the drive and then at the green. And, you know, Early on, you're tempted to like stand at the post in the landing area and look at the green from there and think that's the approach shot that people are going to have. But, you know, if you're not a really good player, you're not going to be right at that stake. You could be 40, 50 yards behind it, 30 yards offline to either side, whatever, you know, because you're not Jack Nicholas, and you don't hit it right to the stake all the time. And that's actually, you know, so I've stopped. First, I stopped standing at the stake. I would go look twenty from 20 yards to the right and 20 yards to the left. One course I told Eric Iverson when he was first starting working for me, just try to make the green look really different from if you're standing right of the stake or standing left of the stake. If you make it feel different that'll be an interesting golf hole no matter what you build for the green um but you know i, I would start after a while i started thinking you know you remember where the stake was when you're playing the golf course and, and you just start laughing to yourself like nobody's nobody's near the stake <laughs> here we are four of us we've just hit our drives nobody's anywhere close to that stake was so eventually i just said let's throw that sucker out of here and not pay any attention to it at all and just build hazards that look interesting and not worry about whether they're 260 from the T or 280 from the T, you know, and not, you know, hopefully we don't repeat ourselves, but you know, I think my golf course has got to be more interesting when I did that, when it's not all based on how far is a good drive. Well, and that's like the interesting thing you talked about earlier with the the kid that was talking about designing with all analytics is that if it becomes all analytical, what happens when the analytics change? Yes. I mean, Jack, you know, Jack Nicholas talks about, well, you know, the equipment's changed so much he has to go back and change a lot of his golf courses because they were designed around a 280 yard drive and now they should be designed around a 300 yard drive or a 310 yard drive. But really he shouldn't have designed them around a 280 yard drive because that's, that's an average. That's not everybody. I mean, if you put all the fairway bunkers at 280, there's guys that can fly every one of them. They're irrelevant completely to them. 
and there's guys that are short of that and they're irrelevant completely to those guys. And you're just pounding the same guy who hits it 275. He can never carry the bunker. And, you know, the golf course is a lot harder for him. The, the hard part is, you know, when you're a good, really good player and you're designing golf courses, you don't think about it in terms of all your peers. You think of it in terms of you. And you think, I hit it, you know, a 280-yard drive is much better for me than a 260-yard drive. A 260-yard drive I missed, so I should penalize that and reward a 280-yard drive. But that doesn't apply to the guy playing next to you. You know, for him, those numbers might be 240 and 260, or they might be 280 and 300. And isn't that that randomness that you're kind of alluding to the with all the golfers and the averages isn't the randomness what makes the old course so brilliant i certainly think so i mean i I, you know i i've been misquoted as saying that you know we just place bunkers completely at random (laughs) which is not literally true i mean you know when you've laid out the hall you you sort of decided where to put the tee and the landing area based on the landform. And, you know, you're looking at potential places to put a bunker. So it's not random when you put a bunker there. All, all I've ever said was, I'm trying to mix it up. Yeah. And, you know, hopefully you can just mix it up by putting things where they look good and seem to make sense. And that's not always the same distance, but you're not really paying that close attention. We do have to go back and, you know, we do go back and check ourselves to make sure that we didn't put every fairway bunker at 240 and right. You know, that would be terrible if you just kept, if you just kept hurting the same player, that doesn't make sense to me at all. And I think that's something that it, with like playability has become such a big talking point. And, you know, you t- architecture's got this pendulum and one of the things if you think about playability for the 20 handicap at some point that i had a, a reader one time email me and say you know one thing you're forgetting about is that i as a 25 handicap one of the things i want to be thrilled i want hazards in my way because if if you remove everything for me then you're robbing me the experience of golf Yes, it just becomes boring. You know, the, the idea that, you know, it's the 1950s idea. Both Trent Jones and Dick Wilson thought the same way. The bunkers should be out there where the average guy doesn't even get to them, which, you know, makes the game from tee to green pretty boring for the guy that can't quite reach all those hazards. It's just like, oh, I'm just trying to get it as far as I can, but I know I'm, I'm not thinking about going left of that bunker. It doesn't make any difference. Um, so golf guide had a question about the Maha project. Um, and is it similar to any projects you've worked on before? Well, this is one I haven't talked about very much because it's in Northern California and, you know, permits take years and years in California and the clients are especially concerned about whether some, you know, there's more people potentially around to come and pick it and, you know, disturb a permit meeting and, and, you know, set the project back. So while they've been in the process of getting permits for it, they've wanted to keep it quiet, what we're working on. Um, but, 
it's a resort project in Northern California and it's close to Napa, but it's, it's out of Napa County because years ago I tried, I was involved with a project that we were trying to get permits to do something in Napa County, you know, in connection with that Etna Springs project that we did, we we're going to build another 18 hole course, but Napa County made it just impossible to get permits. I've never been to public meetings like those. <laughs> <laughs> there's more than four people in the back yelling. there were a lot they they came with their own av you know they came with their own little film in 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 opposition to the golf course and that was just the start of it it was a brutal process so so you, you really can't build a new course in napa county at all and and i don't blame them in a way you know if napa county hadn't been so standoffish about zoning for years you couldn't even drive up that road in the valley anymore i mean there would be so much traffic and so much stuff there it would have been ruined so good for them that they protected that um but you know luckily the county that's next to them is like oh no we're not like that we'd actually like some development here and and so my clients have planned a very high-end resort you know they've always built smaller boutique hotels very small you know and you know they're they're almost marketed as for non-golfers because you know they're they're romantic places to take your wife and they're very expensive um and and the fact that they're so small means they don't support a golf course. You know, it's, it's hard to operate a golf resort when there's only 16 rooms at your hotel or 24 rooms. You know, even if everybody was playing golf, it, the course wouldn't be doing enough business to make money. So that wouldn't make any sense. So, you know, the developers right at the start, they said, I said, well, you know, I know you've never done golf, but you don't really hate golf, do you? And they're like, no, no, we don't hate golf. It just the scale of it never made sense for us. But this this is a this is a huge piece of land. It's twenty five thousand acres, and it's so they're going to do three or four small hotels on their property, a couple miles apart from each other, that are way different from one another, and. But the critical mass of all of those means, okay, now it makes sense if they have golf too. So I said to him in the beginning, well, you know, what don't you like about, what don't you like about golf? And the, the main client said, you know, it's, I mean, he's always built resorts in beautiful places with a beautiful beach, but always small and, and very focused and, he said, I just don't like the big green blob. You know, it just seems to dominate. It takes up so much land and it dominates the landscape. And, you know, I've always been about the, you know, small intimate thing and the perfect view. And that just doesn't seem to, to relate to it. And I sort of nodded and I could understand where he was coming from on that. You know, it's like the golf course takes over the view of the landscape. When you look at the landscape, you see a golf course now instead of, seeing beautiful oak trees and yellow grasses and vineyards and whatever else is out there. So, so that, you know, they had all these pretty famous architects around, around that they're, you know, each of them's going to design a separate little resort. So they're all around the table talking about it. And, and, you know, they're talking about how, 
One of them is probably going to be like an equestrian oriented resort where you can ride horses. And, and they were talking about, well, you know, you can ride a horse from the one resort over to the other resort three miles away and have lunch over there and ride back and kind of make a day out of it. And I sort of filed that away mentally. And, and so when, you know, this is a, I mean, this is not only a big piece of ground, but it's a really rugged piece of ground. I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's streams running through it. There's a river on one side. There's, you know, three or 400 feet of elevation change easily. There's mountain views in all directions. Um, it's a really dramatic piece of land without an ocean, but it's a really dramatic piece of land. And, you know, it would have been hard to just build an 18-hole course in one piece of it that worked really well, you know, just, you know, a bunch of holes out and back to the clubhouse like you think of a typical country club because, you know, there's big elevation changes to deal with and, you know, it would have been hard walking back and forth. So I started thinking and, you know, when they when they started talking about these other activities that can connect the resorts together, I said, what if I did a golf course like that? You know, what if the golf course started up here and finished way over there? Because that, then it wouldn't be a green blob. It'd kind of be a line through the property. Almost like a meanders through the property. Like a trail. And, and when you're close to it, a lot of times you're just looking across one hole you know, you got 40 yards of green grass and then a bunch of native plants on the other side. And, it, you know, you're not looking at the big green blob at all. If you're not looking at a bunker or something golf-specific, you probably wouldn't even know that that was a golf course at all. And immediately the client was like, that sounds really interesting. And so we now have a golf course laid out that the first tee is... 450 feet higher than the 18th green and two miles away. And it doesn't, it's not all just straight in a line. It kind of, you know, the, the front nine kind of from where you start, you start up on the, on a high hill with a gorgeous view and you play three or four holes, just staring down into a deep Canyon. That's a couple hundred feet below you. And then you play back you kind of loop back toward the starting point, but not all the way to it. And then out through this big meadow to a halfway house sitting on a ridge. And then from there, from the 10th tee to the 11th green, the, the course drops like 400 feet. So it's dropped so fast that we, we were like, I don't even think we can put a golf cart path down this thing. It's so steep. So we're actually going to have like a, a funicular to get from the 10th tee to the 10th green down the hill. And then, and then the 11th is still way downhill too, but, but you've got a, there you've got a place to make the cart path kind of wind around and get down there. Um, so it's this huge landscape with a golf course running through it, but it, you know, it doesn't feel like a golf, it doesn't feel like a normal golf course really at all, I don't think. I mean, just those... When you stand where the halfway house is and you look down at where the 11th green and the 12th hole are going to be, you're like, 
my God, that's just, <laughs> that's so far down there. And it's, and it's seen, the scale of this place is just off the charts. Um, and uh, have you ever had a, a course where, you know, more than a couple hundred yards, the, the starting position, the ending, uh, 18, first tee and 18? Yeah, I've or, done that once or twice before. You know, Black Forest in Michigan was like that, one of my early courses. And that was strictly because the client had, you know, they, they had an existing course and a clubhouse and then they didn't own, you know, there were a bunch of lots that they'd sold and we, so we couldn't start and end right near the clubhouse, but we figured out a way to start fairly close to the clubhouse. And then it didn't make sense to go way back up the hill from 16 or 17 to try to finish there. We just finished in the Valley and then you ride back after you're done. And then Dismal River, kind of the same thing the, you know, their clubhouse was already away from the first golf course and they had a bunch of lots planned around where the clubhouse was. So there was no, and the land was really rugged there. So it didn't make sense to try to get our course really close. And, you know, once you're, you know, once you're starting a mile away from the clubhouse, it's like, does it really matter if we finish where we start? And That's like, be kind of liberating. You know, I asked the client that point blank really early in the process at Dismal River. And he looked at me really funny, like, what do you mean? <laughs> but, I, you know, I, and then I explained it. I'm like, well, you know, you're going to have to take a cart from the clubhouse all the way out here to start. Is it important to finish here so you could take the cart all the way back? Or could we, you know, could we finish down there by the river instead? Because there's some, there's some land for some beautiful holes down by the river, but I don't really want to play the two holes straight up the hill it would take to get out of there. I'd rather just finish there and then you take a cart back to where you're going. And he said, no, that's fine. Let's do that. And, you know, I, you know, there's some people that just will not accept this as a viable alternative for a golf course. So, you know, I, I've had some good friends that, you know, oh, you can't, you know, it's important to finish close to the clubhouse and have that intimacy and finishing way down there on the river way away just doesn't make any sense. And, I, you know, I say, but there's not even there's not even a pro shop by the first tee, so why would you want to finish back there? So, the course, the Maha course, will take that to a whole new level <laughs> of of stretching the golf course out on a string and not really feeling like you're, you know, you're just moving away from the clubhouse and meandering around, but you are doing it in. I think the most dramatic landscape that I've ever had to build a golf course in. I mean, you can't, there are no holes like that 11th hole because on other golf courses, because on other golf courses, you'd have to get back up the hill. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, the only way you build a hole like that is if you don't have to go back up there. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like a hike, you know, there aren't a, there aren't many hikes where you gotta just go and to the end because you always have to come back to where you started. Right, and you know, and I've been describing this in terms of golf carts, but part of the idea of it is, it's walkable because yeah. you know even because you don't have to hike all the way back up the hill. You know, the greens and tees are all close together, and you're going to like another part of the resort, and you can get a shuttle back. Exactly, you're going to another part of the resort, and you know you'll have a beer or you have lunch or dinner down there when you're done, and then get shuttled back to your hotel. That's, it's it's got to be that's got to be one of the most unique uh, routing exercises you've ever got to do because it through throws one of the rules 
like out of play. I love it when I can throw rules out of play. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, it almost had to be something like that because the ground is so rugged. I mean, when you, when you think about that concept on a normal piece of land, you know, you would have like a million different options on what to do. And it would take forever to figure out, oh, how am I going to, you know, I could go anywhere with this routing now. So how am I going to decide what's the best solution? This land is rugged enough that, you know, there's not a whole ton of places you could go. It's not like, you know, we're not going to go off the, off the cliff by the second tee down into that valley unless we're going an entirely different direction and finishing somewhere way away. And then that valley with the stream going through it is too narrow for a golf hole. So I thought about it, but it just didn't make any sense to go down there. Yeah. And there were really like, you know, if you, you know, I usually make a lot of the decisions about how a routing works on a map and then go check it out in the field to see how it works. And sometimes, you know, when you're out in the field, you see something, you know, wow, there's a huge, beautiful oak tree there. We should play the, play a hole over that way, which you wouldn't have seen on the map. So I do go back and forth. It isn't all based on the map. Bill Core, when I worked with him at Streamsong, when we were trying to put the routings together for the two courses, he really does most of it in the field. You know, he starts from one point and he looks at how many hole, how many different holes could I play from here? I could make a par five go into that hill over there, or I could make a par four going along this water, or I could make a par three to that little knob, or I could make a par three behind me. You know, so he'll have like four or five different places that it looks like that's a good hole. And then he'll go to every single one of those places and do the same thing. So he's got like a million vectors of different places that you could connect together. And, you know, and he's trying to see how do I connect these together? In, in the case of Maha, they don't have to connect to, you know, the only thing that has to connect together is one green to the next T, but I don't have to work my way back around to that first point. Um, it's a very different thing. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I had a similar, I, after the, the president's cup with, I started thinking about, hey, where could we have the the President's Cup in the United States that would provide a really, you know, compelling uh, golf course in the same vein, same time of year? Um, and I I kept landing, and I the place I landed on was Streamsong, but as a composite course. And I I then I put together like I have like twenty different. <laughs> And I couldn't stop doing it one day, and I I felt like I would just get, I would get here, and I'd be like, well, I could go this way or this way, and then you, it's it was really a fun experiment. Well, a couple of those exist not because we were trying to plan a tournament, but you know, very early in that process, you know, Bill had already started working on routings, and at the at the time, the the client wanted one of only one of us to build a golf course where we did. And the other one of us to build another golf course somewhere else on the property, you know, possibly where the black course was, possibly where the hotel is. And there was one other site two or three miles away from those two. And, you know, Bill and I both, I mean, the, the, the land that we ultimately built on was so dramatic and 
you know, it was, it was so natural for building a golf course in its reconfigured mind state that we both were attracted to that right away. You know, Bill had tried to just lay out 18 holes over it. And, you know, you were giving up a lot of other good holes. You know, there was clearly enough room on it for 27 really cool holes. We weren't sure that there was enough room for 36 holes, but we sort of agree, agreed between ourselves, you know, if we work together, we could probably figure out how to make 36 holes here. And the client, Rich Mack, was concerned that, you know, we would crowd each other too much and, you know, and spoil it somehow. And we were like, don't worry about that. Just let us work on it for a while and see if we can put, put it together between us. So that's how we did it. We, you know, we tried to fit 36 holes in there the best we could without, you know, without having to go into the tougher land or do things that really required a lot of earth moving. And we couldn't quite do it. We could only come up with like 30 or 32 holes that really fit. And eventually Bill went and walked where the first uh, six holes are on the red course. Part of it hadn't been mined. The second and third holes, that was just a flat, boggy stretch that they were gonna mine, that they still had to mine. And he just kind of sucked it up and said, you know, if we did, if we did this little this loop of six holes out here, then then we can make the rest of it work pretty easily. And I said, okay. And and we came up with that routing of the red and blue. And you know, we came up with the routing of the red and blue having not decided which one of us would do which course um that came at the very end and neither one of us really wanted to be the guy who, who decided yeah that's, a, that's a, one of the cool cool projects of the modern era for sure um so we uh we covered a lot we're uh we're gonna we're gonna pack this up for the day and uh thanks again obviously for the time and uh Really excited. I, hopefully, the the Maha project p permits work out because it would be a really neat, neat and different um, golf course than we've seen. Uh, I think we're going to get there. Uh, you know, it's going to. It's not an easy site to build on either, as you as you probably guessed. It's it's rocky, so it's going to take. You know, if we get started on it this spring like we want, it's still going to take two years to build and a year to grow in. So it's. 2023 probably before anybody's playing golf there but hopefully it's worth the wait it's a really different thing and thanks for coming to traverse city um it's it's nice to do a home game every once in a while yeah <laughs>